All right, last time uh, we almost finished um, chapter 5, section 4. Um, so we're going to pick up there tonight, and I am intending on us watching a uh, video that I'd mentioned last week where uh, we have a non-Calvinist and a Calvinist handling the same atheist's objection to our faith, uh, specifically the problem of evil. Um, so I'm going to try to go through this quicker than normal, maybe, um, just because I want to make sure we try to get to that tonight. Um, I don't want us to get too far into this, and then it's two, three weeks ago that we were actually talking about the subject before we watched that. Um, but uh, what we were discussing last week was that God's providence extends even to the sinful choices of His creatures. And so, um, what I want to do, I'm going to go ahead and read, uh, or reread, section 4, since we're going to finish that one up. And then I'm going to go ahead and read section 5. I think we can cover this relatively quickly. Um, so I, I'm hoping we can get through that tonight, and then we'll uh, try to watch that video. <clears throat> All right, section 4, it says... Hey, the, is there any popcorn? <laughs> <laughs> there's, uh, there's snacks in there. <laughs> um, all right, it says, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God are so thoroughly demonstrated in His providence that His sovereign plan includes even the first fall and every other sinful action, both of angels and humans. God's providence over sinful actions does not occur by simple permission. Instead, God most wisely and powerfully limits and in other ways arranges and governs sinful actions. Through a complex arrangement of methods, He governs sinful actions to accomplish His perfectly holy purposes. Yet he does this in such a way that the sinfulness of their acts arise only from the creatures and not from God. Because God is altogether holy and righteous, he can neither originate nor approve of sin. And then uh, section 5 it says, The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows his own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on Him to sustain them, to make them more cautious about all future circumstances that may lead to sin and for other just and holy purposes. So, whatever happens to any of His elect happens by His appointment for His glory, and for their good. Now, <clears throat> where we left off last week, we got to this part in uh, section 4. It says, Yet He does this in such a way that is governing sinful actions of man. He does this in such a way that the sinfulness of their acts arises only from the creatures and not from God, because God is altogether holy and righteous. He can neither originate nor approve of sin. This is one of the main reasons that God's sovereignty over the sinful acts of men is so offensive to many people. They believe that God being sovereign over evil makes him the author or the originator of evil. Nothing could be further from the truth. And to see that, we're going to look at uh, several passages. So first, let's, um, let's look at Isaiah 6. Good place And we're going to look at the entire chapter. So, Isaiah 6, the entire chapter. It's just 13 verses. Alright. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, 
and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for, me, uh, for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And of course, this is referring to what we were going through in Micah, the removal of the people from the land for their sin. Um, the gospel was preached to this rebellious covenant people. And you see from this passage right here, and God was sovereign over this, they did not hear it. They would not hear it. And indeed, they could not hear it. Um, <clears throat> you also see that this is uh, putting uh, chastisement upon chastisement, right? So they're already in sin. And he sends the gospel, and their sinfulness becomes exceedingly more so. Because they have rejected the Lord's truth, and then they have rejected his truth again. Right? Alright, uh, let's look now at James chapter 1. James chapter 1, uh, we're going to read 12 through 15, and uh, keep this in mind, this will also be relevant. Um, when we move to section 5 here in a little bit. <clears throat> uh, James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we see there, God does not tempt us with evil. God does not make us do evil. It comes from within us. And yet, at the same time, God is sovereign over the fact that that's happening. All right. Uh, now let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And this is going to be verses 14 through 16. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Okay, the passions of the former ignorance came from within the people being spoken to. Okay? But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. All right? 1 John chapter 1 
verses 5 through 7. First John chapter one verses five through seven. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay, so you see, God in no way, shape, or form has fellowship with darkness. And those who walk in darkness that say they have fellowship with God are liars. Uh, Alright, same book, next chapter. So, First John chapter 2. And then this is going to be verses um, 16 and 17. Actually, let me back up. I'm going to go ahead and read 15 as well. So 1 John 2, we'll do 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride... In possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. <coughs> oh. That uh, that will conclude section four. Now moving to section five. It says, the perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows his own children for a time. Let's be clear. He allows. He does not make them do it. He allows this to happen. But not by bare permission is what the last section said. He allows uh, his own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. So since God is sovereign over all things, including the sinful choices of his free creatures, it is his prerogative for his perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious purposes to do this. If we believe that first part, that he is perfectly, without any defect, wise, righteous, and gracious, then it would flow from that that everything that he does is wise, righteous, and possibly gracious. I don't think that necessarily everything he does is gracious. Because there does come a time for judgment. Um, but certainly he would be wise and righteous. All right now, also uh, uh, in Hebrews uh, chapter 4, uh, what it says is that uh, uh, he was tempted in all things as we, uh, but Christ did not as sin. Human, yeah. So what happens is that uh, not only... Uh, do we wind up uh, with temptation? But basically the situation is that uh, uh, with that temptation, uh, uh, the Lord uh, literally uh, will grow us. Uh, And what happens is that uh, uh, when we learn to uh, handle it, then what happens is that we literally uh, uh, have a leg up on uh, uh, what we're supposed to, uh, I mean, that holy as I as I am holy. Right. Uh, basically, what happens is, and I'm, <coughs> I'm not talking about uh, a uh, uh, path uh, for justification. All I'm talking about is that uh, uh, he uh, literally, uh, supposedly, has the same temptations. As we, but basically the situation is that uh, uh, he was not uh, uh, guilty of any transgression. But basically, right. Uh, and I think it. that uh, I I'm think sorry. that no, you're good. That, that actually hits on some of the reason for this. So, and that, and I was about to ask the question: Why would no, no, he do no, this? No, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm no, you're sorry. good. So, why would God do this? Because I mean, obviously, we've established here. He's perfectly wise and righteous towards us, his elect. He is perfectly always gracious. 
right? So if that's the case, why would he allow us to fall into temptation and perhaps even sin itself, not just the temptation to it? How is allowing us to experience temptation and even falling into sinful lusts of our flesh for a time, but not forever, uh, how is that something that works for our good and God's glory? It, it seems to be illogical if you just, on the surface of it. But if you dig deeper, I think that it does make sense, and some of what Ken was saying is the answer. Um, he does this to chastise them for their former sins. This is what the confession says. He does this. To, well, you're good. He does this to chastise them for their former sins, or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on Him, to sustain them, to make them more cautious about all future circumstances that may lead to sin, and for other just and holy purposes. That's how the confession puts it. That's a really long answer to the question. <laughs> so, let's break that down just a little bit in, into smaller parts. Um, so we're going to look at uh, several passages to go along with this. And I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge I've, I've broken it up into categories. Some of these verses, like there may be a verse in one category that could properly fit into another category also. So there's going to be overlap. I'm just telling you. Out of, the, uh, out of the gate. But uh, I've, I've broken this statement down into the, these reasons. Okay, He does this for our chastisement, or for that you could say discipline over former or present sin that's already there in us. Uh, he does this for our awareness of the strength, uh, strength of the corruption in our flesh. So maybe we're arrogant. I think right. there may be a sense of learning there. Absolutely. You, know, you, um, you touch a hot uh, stove three times before you learn it's going to die. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we, uh, uh, I some, hope that I don't have to go three times. Oh, I did it five or six. <laughs> Sometimes well, I do. One or two is good enough. Sometimes we... Uh, Bring out the plate at the Mexican restaurant. I'm touching it. It's the first thing you do. Touch it. Me. Yeah, but that's usually not hot. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so, uh, not, but seriously, though, sometimes we, uh, we're not aware like, we really think we're better than we are. And, and maybe we even attribute how good we think we are to God. Maybe it's not that we're, uh, oh, yeah, look at me, I'm some hot shot. But in our ignorance, we think, man, I've really arrived. And it's God, God gets the glory for it, but man, I've really arrived. And then he's like, no, you have not. <laughs> um, so that's another reason. Uh, related to that, humility. Um, and then also awareness of our constant and complete dependence upon God. And then finally, uh, we want to learn from past and present mistakes, so caution about the future. So that's the categories from this statement, and um, I think they're all biblical, so we're going to look at the Bible to see that. So the first category is chastisement or discipline over former or present sins. Um, so these first two passages go together. Um, First, we're going to go to Second Samuel chapter twelve. <clears throat> um, to set the scene for what's going on here, this is um, after David has taken another man's wife and then tried to cover it up and failed to do so uh, through the original means that he was trying. So essentially had the man killed in war to hide it because he died in a battle, so we can't charge anybody with murder, right? But uh, he gave the orders to basically make it such that he would die. And uh, David thinks he's gotten away with this. Nobody knows. Um, man is dead, and so now he can take the man's wife, and she's pregnant with his child. And so, But we're good because nobody will ever find out now. So that's context. <clears throat> All right, so starting in uh, verse 1, chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he bought it, uh, or he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. So King David, who's in charge of justice in the land, is right to be angry about this. And as, um, as the king, the one who ultimately justice rests in his hands in a human sense, um, he wants to do the right thing here. But then it kind of goes south on him. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house, and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as, uh, as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you. The Lord is going to raise this up. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is, to be, uh, who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And then we also know later on, uh, rebellion from within the house, Absalom. Uh, Absalom would kill his older brother um, who had raped his sister. Um, and then Absalom uh, rebelled against David and eventually he himself died and this tore David to shreds, basically. Um, the sword did not depart, just as God had said. Um, nevertheless, David still belonged to the Lord. So <clears throat> David penned what we're about to read after this, after these events we just read about here, Psalm 51. So that is the context for what we're about to read here in Psalm 51. And uh, I'm going to read the entire psalm. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. See, allowing David to fall into this, look at David's response. Maybe some of that arrogant, cocky, oh yeah, I'm the Lord's king. Now it's, oh God, created me a clean heart. Ooh, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out 
all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart and a contrite spirit. O God, you will not despise. Do not or, uh, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. <clears throat> this produced repentance in David. It changed him forever and for the good. Even though what he did was evil, God used it for David's good. And also, through this event, much like what we talked about with Jacob and his brothers, Solomon was born from this relationship, and it was through Solomon's seed that the Messiah came. That's another thing to bear in mind. All right, and then what you what you have is in uh, Romans eight, uh, what uh, what says then that, that uh, God passed over us sins in the past. So these things that uh, uh, that uh, he literally did not judge uh, David for at this point in time. Uh, he uh, is waiting until uh, the blood of Christ comes uh, and then uh, all of it will be dealt with. Right. Um, one more on chastisement. I'm sorry. No, you're good. One more on chastisement is going to be Hebrews chapter 12. This is going to be verses 3 through 14. Now, I will say, in the context, I don't think everything that's being discussed here is about temptation to sin. Um, some of this is maybe suffering for righteousness' sake as well. Um, but I still think it's relevant to this particular discussion. So this is Hebrews uh, 12, and we're going to read 3 through 14. Okay? So Hebrews 12, 3 through 14. It says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, it's talking about Jesus, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, okay, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. That's the reason right there, by the way. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's the reason for discipline right there. Um, Alright, the next category... I'm going to try to zoom through the rest of these because I see what time it is. Uh, the next category is awareness of the strength of the corruption in their flesh. Okay? Now, I don't think we can talk about that without going to Romans 7 because I think that's the passage that everybody would 
probably think about on that topic. So let's go to Romans 7 and just read uh, verses 7 through 25. I say Romans 7, 7 through 25. Alright, he says, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Here's where we see some overlap, by the way. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, that's not an excuse to sin. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Break that one down for me a little bit. Sure. Um, so the idea there is... I, I think part of that passage he's talking about prior to his conversion and then he switches, I can't remember which verse it was at, but he switches to now I'm in a converted state and I'm still fighting sin. Um, so the idea there is that, um, and I'm really more so looking at the post-conversion aspect of that, uh, but the idea there is that, um, so there is a struggle within after we're converted. So the new man, the one... Uh, created by the Holy Spirit, wants to do what's right, wants to follow God. At the same time, the corruption of our flesh remains, which is actually why I'm using this passage, because that's our heading, awareness of the strength of corruption in the flesh. So the uh, corruption of the flesh remains, so that there is an inner war there um, that honestly lasts until we die, until we... uh, Shed the flesh, basically. Um, So that's what he's talking about there. There's a struggle there. So there is remaining corruption. And the only way to be delivered from it is through Christ. Now, another one of these uh, headings that we're going to look at is awareness of our constant and complete dependence upon God. This struggle really makes us understand our complete and total dependence upon God because apart from Him, we can't overcome sin within us. But with him, we will overcome sin within us. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. But there were just too many. Yeah, sometimes, uh, Peter even admitted, Paul wordy sometimes. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to go to another passage with Paul now. First uh, Corinthians 10. And this is just going to be one verse. First uh, Corinthians 10, verse 12. <clears throat> It says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That also can go with caution about the future, too. 
Um, and then we read this passage earlier, but I'm going to go back to it again because I think it's relevant here. Uh, James chapter 1, uh, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Still corruption within, right? Now, uh, humility. That's the next heading. So 2 Chronicles chapter 32. And this is going to be 24, uh, verses 24 through 31. So, uh, 2 Chronicles 32, 24-31. And uh, this is about Hezekiah. Remember, Hezekiah is described as a good king, uh, a king who followed after the ways of the Lord. Uh, nevertheless, it was not without sin, uh, which we're about to see. I'm and, sorry, what was the chapter and verses again? It was 2 Chronicles 32, verses 24-31. through 31. And this is actually one of the passages that's cited in the uh, confession as well. <laughs> Alright, it says, In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. He was arrogant. Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself. See, that was the effect. He was humbled for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries uh, for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of costly vessels. Storehouses also for the yield of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself and flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. That's key. God gave it to him. There was no need for him to be cocky about it. This same Hezekiah closed the upper outlets of the waters of Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all his works. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign, that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. You will remember Hezekiah foolishly allowed the envoys from Babylon to see everything. He was showing off for them. And then later on, Babylon conquered them. <laughs> Alright. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 we're going to read a little more than the focal verse. I really want us to focus on verses 7 and 9, but I'm actually going to read 1 through 10. <clears throat> so 2 Corinthians 12. Alright, and again, focus really... Focusing in on 7 through 9. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. This is Paul speaking. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was called up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited... So he's actually saying this. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, awareness of sinfulness in the flesh, humility, and our complete dependence upon God. All in that passage there. Alright, now the next heading is awareness of our constant and complete dependence upon God. So we'll start with Psalm 143. Just one verse here. Psalm 143, verse 7. It says, Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Alright, next passage is going to be John chapter 15. This is Jesus speaking to the the apostles. John 15. Uh, It'll be verses 1 through 11 with special focus on verse 5, but um, let's read 1 through 11. Alright. <clears throat> Jesus says, I am the vine, or I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. It's discipline. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And here he just outright says it. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He prunes us. It's discipline. And he says outright, without me, you can do nothing. Alright, Philippians chapter 2. Verses 12 and 13 here. So, uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Uh, 13. <laughs> Get it out. <clears throat> it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. Alright, and then our final category um, on this. Yeah, I'm seeing what time it is. We ain't getting that video today. Um, (laughs) Our final category is uh, caution about the future. (laughs) We'll start with that next week. I ain't going to worry about that this week. Matthew 6. Just 
course, is part of the Lord's Prayer. So, uh, Matthew 6, verse 13. Jesus tells His disciples to pray, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That follows, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So there is a present awareness of sin in our hearts and our lives. We need forgiveness. And there is also, because of that knowledge, caution about the future. Hey, I need God's help to not fall into this again or to some other temptation. And then um, we've already read it, but also uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, if you want to go reread it later, um, that would fall into that category. <clears throat> so the confession goes on and says, So, whatever happens to any of his elect happens by his appointment for his glory and for their good. R.C. Sproul comments, this is a simple expression of God the Father's benevolent care for His children. His principal will for our lives is our sanctification. Would you like to know what God wants from us? He wants us to be holy, conformed to the image of His Son. That should be our chief concern in life. End quote. So uh, first on this, let's look at a passage that we look at really pretty often. Romans 8. 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know, so there's absolutely no doubt here, we know that for those who love God, all things, including the temptations we go through and the even the sin that we sin, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Um, so we see there, all things, even this, works to our good in the end. And God's good purposes in this are ultimately our sanctification, that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. It's all about Jesus. Um, Alright, another passage on this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we will look at verses 1 through 8, but we're putting special emphasis on verse 3. So, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. And the focal verse will be Verse 3. <clears throat> Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. And then finally, let's look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> and 
First Peter, the first two verses in the book. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Alright, so that gets us through section 5. Um, <laughs> went a bit longer than I thought I would. Um, so we'll try to get to that video next week. I'll just try to start with that next week. and That way we'll ensure we get it in this time. Uh, do we have any uh, discussion or comments, questions, or even objections? Everybody's good? <clears throat> All right, well then we'll just uh, dismiss with a word of prayer then. Father in heaven above, we thank you for the opportunity again to gather and to study your word through the confession. We thank you for these truths that we've discussed tonight. Um, we thank you for the comfort and the peace that comes from knowing that um, even when we're struggling even when we're failing, that ultimately you'll work that for our good and for your glory. I pray you'd help us to bear that in mind as we struggle through our lives on this side of eternity and pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on the prize <coughs> eternity with our Lord. Not that we would earn it in any way. We know that we don't. The grounds of our salvation is the work of Christ alone. But you've saved us to do good works that glorify your name. And so help us to do that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.